Here at Mercy Village Church, we are on a mission with Jesus to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. There are eight distinctive evidences we believe we will see if we are truly on that mission. We are a peculiar people, and these are the shaping characteristics of Mercy Village Church. We're just going to dive right in. No clever introduction this week. Just jump in. Cold cold start, right? Intentional multiplication. We've been going through a sermon series of eight characteristics that we hope will mark, we pray will mark Mercy Village Church. We've said it in this way, that that these are evidences that we're on mission to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. These are evidences that we are people who are saved by Jesus to walk with Jesus together in worship towards our neighbor to the ends of the earth throughout generations for all our days. That's our vision. Right? The evidence is that we're living in line with that mission and that vision are more than these eight. But these are eight that we as the leaders of Mercy Village Church, as we were presenting a prospectus, some of y'all were at those meetings where we actually went through a little booklet talking about what this, what we prayed and hoped this church would look like. These were eight marks that would be evidences of that. And we've gone through them all and up to number eight today. We looked at walking with Jesus, that we would be people in particular through reading the word of God and praying, but also in all the other spiritual disciplines as well, fasting and and community and all those ways that we would walk with Jesus. Pretty simple. But again, in our busy lives, oftentimes neglected, we'd be people who walk with Jesus through prayer and the reading of the word, that we'd be marked by risky faith. And wherever God calls us, whenever, however God calls us, whatever He calls us to, we'll step out and follow Him, regardless of of where or how difficult. Selfless ministry, we looked at Jesus washing His disciples' feet. We talked about how we must lay our lives down for one another. That we can't come in here with a chip on our shoulder, but instead we, we minister selflessly. Walking with one another, that's community. We have community groups that we're gonna, are going to get kicked back off here in uh, towards the end of August, we have uh, events that we do together as the people of God. And outside of that, just in your everyday lives, are you mingling with the people of God? Not exclusively. God forbid that we only hang out with other Christians. But do you have Christians in your life that you're walking with so that you can encourage one another, speak into each other's lives the truth of the gospel? Welcoming others, that we'd be a place that throws wide open our doors and welcomes people in the name of Jesus regardless of where they've come from. People of every type, rich, poor alike, sinners and saints, welcome in this place. And in our homes, not just in this place, but in our lives as well. That we would live local, that we would invest ourselves where we are, when we are there. God might not always keep us here in this place, each one of us individually. We may eventually move on to other places. That might happen, but while we're here, we're all in to be members of our community with the gospel radiating out of our lives. And then last week, going outward. The Great Commission. Every tribe and tongue and nation. From Jerusalem, which means we go outward, even if it's just across the street, to our neighbors, that's going outward. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And it all kind of culminates and builds into intentional multiplication, that this would become a self-replicating thing. Here's how we write it. 
We are deeply committed to intentional multiplication. And this will help put some skin on what we mean by this. We desire to multiply servants. Think of disciples of Jesus. To multiply servants, leaders, and churches. To that end, we will value sacrifice over influence. We will value development over excellence and sending over growing. Practically speaking, this means that our volunteers will be mobilized to equip the volunteers that serve beside them in ministry. Our best, and that's in quotation marks, because if you think I'm the best, you're wrong. But our best leaders, we probably should have put in quotation marks, the leaders you see most frequently in the front will frequently sit by cheering while up and coming leaders take, and in other words, I'm in quotation marks, the stage, because I hope, hate that word. That's why we, our stage is only two and a half inches tall. Um, but you will frequently see our best leaders step aside so that other people can get cuts at doing ministry. That's the price of intentional multiplication. And our church will embrace with joy wide swaths of people being called out of here to plant churches near and far. It is our prayer and our hope that one day we will be experience that together, that we will be able to bring some folks up here and pray over them and send them out to plant a church or individuals to the mission field. You get the point. We want this to be a piece of our DNA, a part of who we are as the body of Christ. Today in particular, what we'll see in these three verses is that true gospel multiplication doesn't come without a cost. It costs something. It really does. And if, I, and, if, and if you don't think it does, then you won't be prepared to do it when the time comes as a church to multiply. When the time comes individually to, to disciple someone and send them out to do what you won't be ready for that if you don't understand that it comes with a cost, but the gospel of Jesus is worthy of that cost. Father, today, what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us, and what we have not, please give us. I, I oftentimes, this is just reality. It's your grace, in all honesty. I come into this stage feeling like a hypocrite because apart from the grace of Jesus, I am. Today, like every week, I preach to myself first the gospel. Might, it be, might we receive it today for ourselves, not for others? Not for so-and-so that we think of when we hear this, but for ourselves. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. We already read this together. Let's, let's read it again. Every saint in Antioch mattered. They had a church in Antioch. We're going to see that. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger... Lucius of Cyrene, Menane, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. These were the core team leadership of a church in Antioch. Now, Antioch is a very important place in church history. Extremely important. If you go to Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the very last part, you read this. I think this is so cool. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The first time 
people are referred to as Christ followers, as little Christ, was in Antioch. That's awesome. Super cool place. It wasn't just influential in church history, though. Uh, I think we have a map. We, don't, we try not to do too many maps because I feel like a nerd. But you can see Antioch over here on the right, above Syria, the green. And, and there's Antioch. It's, it's up from Jerusalem in Judea. It was in a, an area that was known then and, uh, as Syria. And as different empires rose and fell, uh, in particular the Seleucus Empire and then the Roman Empire, Antioch would stay the capital of that region that area. It was an incredibly important city, just in general, politically, uh, economically. It was an important city. The church leaders of that day would have understood this. They weren't just doing random things. They would have, I'm sure, prayed for certain cities to have outbreaks of, of the gospel in them because they knew these places will be deeply influential to the spread of the church. And Antioch was probably one of those cities. They, they would have seen it as important. And God blesses them in that place. When we pick it up here, we see they have this strong core team of leaders. There's already a church that's been established. But it's been established through these leaders. And every single one of them matters to the mission. you got, you got to understand that. Because we already read it. They're going to send some of them out. And if you don't see the cost of it, right, then you're, then you're missing a part of this message. It was going to cost something to send them out. These people mattered. You've got Simeon the Black. That's what he's called, right? I guess it wasn't quite as racist back then. He was called Simeon the Black. He was from North Africa. This guy's from Ethiopia region or somewhere like that. And, and he is a part of this church as it forms. You have Lucius. What's cool about Simeon is that he may have been, this is, we don't know this for sure, but he might have been the very Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross for Jesus. You remember that piece of the story? Jesus falls down, he can't carry the cross any further. It's possible that that was this Simon Simeon from Cyrene. He's got a, a nickname. He's, he's got some melanin. Simon, North African. You have another North African, Lucius. He's possibly one of the founders of the church. If you go back to Acts chapter 11 again, this is a few chapters back, you see the birth of this church in Antioch. Verses 19 through 11. Now those who scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember Stephen is stoned to death. He was on on mission with the disciples to see the gospel spread. They hate him for it. They kill him in Jerusalem. Persecution breaks out and the church is scattered. By God's grace, the church is scattered because watch, watch what happens. Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, these people who are being scattered, these Christians, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Oh, that's not in line with the Great Commission. This is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But you have a couple other guys come along. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, possibly Simeon and Lucius, who said, wait a second. They know what it's like to be outsiders. They're North African dudes here in the church. They say, we should be telling 
everyone. So they come to Antioch and they spoke to the Hellenists or the Gentiles also preaching the Lord Jesus. And watch this. The hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So Simeon and Lucius, these North African Christians, and this is massive, right? They weren't teaching this in in the South during the days of slavery, but it's true. The church is rooted in African influence because these men, right? God saved these men. That's just, it's it. It's here. We just read it. These men are saved by the gospel, and they're the reason that in Antioch, the gospel is spread not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, and revival breaks out. I mean, it just spills over. Then you've got another random thing. You've got uh, uh, Mannion, or I've said his name three different ways. You have picked up on that. Just know I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, he grew up with Herod, the Tetrarch. They were probably like, some translations say, lifelong friends. They were buddies. You know who Herod the Tetrarch was? He's the one who killed John the Baptist, had his head severed off. That's how he felt about the truth. That's how he felt about the kingdom of God. That's how he felt about Jesus. This is one of his lifelong friends. I'd love to hear that conversion story. It's not in the word of God, but right? How he came to be this person who was close to power, close to influence, close to wealth, close to royalty, who said, now I'm going to follow this this Jesus guy from Nazareth, this peasant. I'm going to follow him instead. He probably left a lot to do that. He's a diverse group of people here. This is wild. But it turns out they weren't necessarily fully equipped, or at least the church in Jerusalem would have thought this, to get the job done, so they send in these heavy hitters. Barnabas. That that name has some more press to it. The son of encouragement. He's been there from the start. The apostle Paul is in ministry because, in part because of Barnabas. Being willing to encourage him, even when... Uh, nobody else would have anything to do with Paul. And of course, you have Paul. Saul, Paul, same person. They're called up to assist in Antioch. We read that in chapter 11, verses 22 through 26. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So he goes up from Jerusalem to Antioch. He goes north. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, uh, and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Even more people are saved by the truth of the gospels, like revival pouring out in Antioch. So Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. He's hiding out somewhere in Tarshish. He goes and finds him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met Barnabas, Saul, Paul, Simeon, Lucius, Manain, 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 met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I, t- I take us to that story to help you understand that these names, these five people, this core team of leaders were essential to the work that God was doing. They were important to the work that God was doing. In human terms, you would look at those people and say they are indispensable to the mission. Human wisdom would say we've got to have not just those guys, but we need more like them because this thing is growing rapidly and we need good leaders, good people to invest in the work that God is doing. The last thing that you would expect is for them to cut that team by 40% 
and send them away, right? But that's why the voice of God directs multiplication, not human wisdom. If human wisdom directed multiplication in the body of Christ, it would rarely, if ever, happen. But it's God who leads the way, and that's exactly what happens in verse 2. And I love this, by the way. Multiplication, this risky, by human standards, detrimental multiplication starts with worship. They're worshiping when this happens. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. They take, right, the Holy Spirit, right, they're fasting, they're withholding from something uh, so that they can experience the presence of God. That's fasting and just a really short definition. Refraining from doing something, consuming something, experiencing something, so that you can experience the fullness of God. Those things that you think you need to fill you up, when you release them through fasting, right? The point is, God fills you up. Jesus fills you up. He sustains you. That's what you learn through fasting. And so they're worshiping, they're depending fully on God, they're, they're finding themselves dependent on Him, and what happens? The Holy Spirit speaks to them. And he says to them, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work. Doesn't say what it is, by the way. For the work for which I have called them. Note, it's an open-handed call. No definitions. The Holy Spirit says, I want a blank check with thy kingdom come written in the memo line. May the kingdom of God be brought to bear written in the memo line with Paul and Barnabas' names in the in the in the cash line, right? And whatever, whoever I tell you to make that check out to, whatever I tell you to make that check out to, open-handed call. And they're willing to do it, we see. Most of us say, well, 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 but but what if, what if it's hard, right? Can I get a little more info on the call? Tell me a little bit more about it. What if it, God forbid, cuts our leadership team almost in half. I don't know if I'm ready to sign on for that, right? What if it makes ministry harder? It cuts in on my pet ministry that I love. What if, what if, what, 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 I don't know. But they, they don't care. They're open-handed. They know that God is good and faithful and that, right? And through fasting and worship, He is their portion. He is all that they need. They don't need Paul, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manan. They need Jesus. He will fill them. They know that. So they write a blank check to the Holy Spirit. They say, thy kingdom come. Whatever it is, we're in. Blank check. Are you? Am I? Right? I promise you, as I prayed, I'm preaching to me today. Are we willing to give the Holy Spirit a blank check of our lives, wherever, whenever, however you call me. They were. And boy, oh boy, does God ask something big of them. He genuinely asked them for something massive. Verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them they go. 
the leadership team, like I said, is cut significantly. There's a vacuum created on the, in, in the leadership at the church at Antioch. They know God feels vacuums because God plucks out his people and equips them to serve his church like it's nothing. There are people in this room right now, myself included, who don't belong here by human terms. And God has plucked us out and equipped us for the mission. And Paul and Barnabas can hightail it out of there for something new that God's called them to, and God will raise up those who need to fill the void. They're banking on it. They send them out. But, but notice this, and this is just an just a observation that matters. They pray again. They fast again. This guards against a person taking advantage of this kind of open-handed church. Antioch was an open-handed church. If God calls us to it, we're going to do it, right? But it doesn't mean that you just fly off half-cocked. You're just randomly like signing up for anything just because so-and-so said, well, the Holy Spirit told me to do it, so we're doing it, right? From now on, everybody has to wear purple to church on Sundays because the Holy Spirit told me to, right? No, I mean, they take some time. They pray about it. They fast. But you know what they're not asking when they pray? They're not asking, is this going to be hard or is this going to be comfortable or is this even going to be beneficial on paper for Antioch? They're asking instead, is it God's will? And if it is God's will, blank check, thy kingdom come. Listen, I've seen both extremes. I've been a part of both extremes of of ways this can go wrong. Where there's good work that God has desiring to do that is thwarted Because there are people who don't want to take the risk. There are people who don't want to carry the weight. There are people who don't want to insert whatever difficult thing. And so there might be an entire group of people saying, it's so clear that God's calling us to this, but there's a few people that hold out and like, no, I just don't think so, right? They're not willing to give the blank check. Good work thwarted. But I've also seen like the opposite side where nobody consults the Lord on anything. It just seems expedient and good. It just seems like the right thing to do. Nobody's praying. Nobody's fasting. Nobody's talking to the Lord about this. And really stupid things can happen that way. In the name of just being, stepping out in risky faith or, or writing a blank check. So it's, it's both. They don't move too fast. They don't move too slow. They, they follow the Holy Spirit. He calls them to send their best and they, and they do it. So how do we respond? What's that mean for us? Mercy Village Church, as we look at that example. Well, a couple of things. Might we live as part of the multiplying kingdom of God? That's the, the message of the kingdom. The story of the kingdom is multiplication. Disciples don't just follow Jesus. Disciples make more disciples as they follow Jesus. Churches don't just exist. Churches exist to plant more churches, that plant more churches, that plant more churches. That's how the gospel is spread throughout the world. Still happening today. There are people who are called out from churches to go as missionaries to to places in the way we live as part of that multiplying kingdom. So the first piece is the same homework as last week. We would be people who pray, thy kingdom I failed to do the homework I assigned you guys last week. I didn't do it. This week I'm going to take a post-it note 
I'm going to put it on the mirror in the bathroom. I'm going to put another one right next to my dresser. It says, pray thy kingdom come so that every day this week, at least one time, I will pray that prayer of releasing my desires, my dreams, my hopes for my family, for Mercy Village Church, for my own life over to God and say, thy kingdom come. If it's not your kingdom, I don't want it. Thy kingdom come. Will you join me in that? Every day this week, set aside, even if it's only 45 seconds of earnest prayer, thy kingdom come in my marriage. Thy kingdom come in my neighborhood. Thy kingdom come in my job. Thy kingdom come. And second, might we not just pray that that reality is, is true of us, but might we also embrace and practice intentional multiplication. I'm going to preach a little bit. Step on some toes. I'm stepping on my own toes. Know that. As I say what I'm about to say, I am preaching primarily to myself, my own soul here. I'm deeply humbled to even talk about this this way. Three spheres of multiplication and then the spirit of multiplication. What it is and what it isn't. This, that's where it gets kind of tough. First, three spheres to think of. When you think of what it is to be a Christian who multiplies influence, multiplies uh, the work of Jesus out of your own life. Think about it first in just your personal life, your relationships that you have, your friends, your family. This isn't just a church thing. It's a kingdom-wide thing. You and your home are kingdom outposts. They are. God has saved you for a reason and put you where you are for a reason. So build into your relationships. Build into your spouse. Build into your kids and your neighbors and build into your community group and on and on. Personally, invest. And what I mean by multiplication is to see the people around you equipped more and more and more to love Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, talk about Jesus, serve Jesus. Building into people's lives. Not only is there this personal sphere, but there's the sphere of, of servants and leaders, members and leaders of the church. We talked about that in the way we wrote it at the very beginning, that, that we want to equip people in this church to lead the church. Every role in this church matters to the kingdom. So plant the seeds of multiplication in the kids' ministry and the hospitality ministry and, and through your giving and your volunteering, through making coffee, even when I forget to turn the coffee machine on, showing up at member meetings, caring about what's happening at the church. We invest ourselves in that way. And then outward multiplication would be the third sphere. And I'm thinking specifically of planting churches and sending missionaries. Might this be part of our story at Mercy Village Church? That God would call people out from this place, whether it's people who feel called by God to be missionaries and near or far, we commission to go and serve, or if it's actually, and, and I long for this day, and I also dread this day because there'll be pain associated with it as well, that we'll send out swaths of people to plant churches in our own backyards and, and, and Huntington and, and Hurricane and et cetera. Those spheres of multiplication. And now here's the spirit of multiplication. I'm preaching to myself. Might we choose selflessness 
over influence. We're not building a brand here. Jesus is building a church. We are, that's like, that's, that might come off as white noise, but that's because building a brand is so a part of our lives through social media and every, that's just the way society works now that we can easily turn what happens here and what happens in our homes as we personally read the Bible and invest in our children, the truth about, into building a brand. No, Jesus is building a church, which means team, not celebrity. That means we're together in this, not one person trying to rise in the ranks. That's not how this works. Church-wide ownership, all of us. And when I mean ownership, I mean responsibility and engagement. I don't mean possession, right? This isn't my church. This isn't your church, right? You don't own it in that way. Jesus has the deed to the church, not any of us. I mean, ownership and responsibility, engagement. Might we all own it? Not just a few people in a back room, not just a few leaders, right? Who meet from time to time and make all these decisions. That's why we try to format our bylaws in very specific ways as a church. And I know that might not be interesting to everyone, but we want our church, our congregation of people to have ownership in the decisions we make and the vision that we pursue. It's all of us together. It's not one person. Selflessness, not influence. My wife has always told this story. There was a professor we had at Marshall. His name was Jonathan Cox. And the first time she met his wife, she said to her, she said, oh, you're Jonathan Cox's wife. And she said, no, Jonathan Cox is my husband, right? I say that to say this. Sometimes, if, especially if you meet somebody that knows Pastor Josh Early or Pastor Paul Bokel, they might be like, oh, Mercy Village, that's Paul's church. That's, that's Josh's church. You don't need to be rude to them, but in your heart, you need to be thinking, no, that's my church. They're pastors there. It's their church too, yes. But it's my church. It's our church. We own it together. So let go of your influence. We're not here for control. We're here to wash feet. That's what we're here for. This is so countercultural to, to let go of influence. Mark Dever says it like this. Delegating authority means ceding a measure of control. And if you're willing to do that, you need to be willing to lose votes. He's talking to pastors in particular. And not always have the last word. Not everything must go your way. If you never let people lead in a way contrary to your opinion, you're not really letting them lead. Just a micromanager and a manipulator. So yes, you might be disappointed to lose on this or that issue as this church grows. (laughs) But the gain of encouraging other leaders to lead is better long-term investment, not to mention it blesses the church with the gifts of their wisdom. So might we choose selflessness over influence? I'm not done. I'm still coming for us. Might we choose development over excellence? We're equippers, not perfectionists. We equip the body of Christ for the work of ministry, not for perfectionism. My bride tells another story, and she just has all the good stories. She grew up, 
her mom had these dear friends and they would visit them often. They would go to their home and there was this room there. There was all these glass cabinets with all these precious items, right? And she loved to stand at the door and look into the room, but she never walked into the room. She beheld the beauty of the room, but she never experienced the room because the cases said, do not disturb, do not touch, display only. We do not want to be ever, ever, ever a display only church. There's these big stains on this one chair over here. I see them every time. When I see them, I pray, God, give us more of them. As we do ministry to people, might it be so prolifically diverse that we stain more chairs, that we weep in this place over brokenness and wounds that, that exist within us as we, Jesus meets us exactly where we are. Do you have any glass rooms in this building or in your ministry? Let them go. Rosario Butterfield says this about our homes, but it applies to our church. She says, the question is, do Christian people practice Christian hospitality in regular, ordinary, consistent ways? Are you opening up your home? Or do we think our homes too precious for criminals and outcasts? Our homes are not castles. Indeed, they are not even ours. This church is not our castle. In fact, it's not even ours. It belongs to Jesus. It's His. And He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And anyone who wants to stand at the door and say, No, you're not welcome here, right? you got to answer to Jesus. I'm, I'm, calm down, Paul. Right? I'm, I'm being... It never be so. These doors are open to the least, the last, and the lost. You know how I know that? Because they're open for me, knucklehead. They're open for you, sinners. Right? Who are you to ever stand at that door after you've been welcomed in by Jesus and tell somebody else they can't come in? Give me a break. You've either lost complete touch with who you are or lost touch with who Jesus is or both. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Excellence, right, doesn't matter as much as development. And for us to develop people, we have to welcome them in. There's another part to this too is if you are a leader in particular, hear me, you cannot, if you've coached, you understand this. If you're a parent, you understand this. You cannot bring maturity through micromanagement. You can't. If you're a leader in this church or you have the opportunity to lead anywhere, you can't bring about maturity through micromanagement. It doesn't happen. Our kids are loading the dishwasher now, and it drives me insane. I haven't done much around the house. I'm not saying this to say I'm good at doing chores because I'm not. But the one thing I have done is I have loaded and unloaded the dishwasher 85 to 95% of the time since I married my wife. That's the one thing I've succeeded at. She'll tell you it's very few things, but that's the one. Which means there's a science to it now. There's a way it gets done. And I used to come behind my wife like a complete idiot and rearrange the way she loaded the dishwasher. And you know what that got me? That got me a wife who doesn't load the dishwasher. You micromanage people as you lead, you'll suffocate them. 
You'll stifle them. You'll let them walk and fall. And I have people do that for me. I mean, mess up bad. Say the stupidest things from, from stages and churches that they had to clean up the mess for. And they let me do it. Development, not excellence. Those will slow us down, by the way. Can't move as fast when you're letting knuckleheads handle things because they're going to mess up and they're going to break things, just like I do. It'll slow you down, but hear me. When you pass over leaders too quickly because they're not doing it exactly the way they're supposed to do, they end up unused or underused. The church gets anemic. I've only got one more. Sending over growing. We want to value sending out from this place more than we value growing into this place. My friend Dan McGann, he actually preached for us when we were in the old building. Their church, Rockfish Baptist Church, generally supports us monthly with funds. He says this, we're not building a museum for special saints This is a field hospital for busted, broken, wounded sinners and saints to be triaged and cared for in the gospel and then equipped and mobilized to be people who now can triage others and care for others so that they can be healed in the gospel and mobilized to go out in the gospel. And this will inevitably lead, right, if it's done right, to this place, Lord willing, I pray for this, being overrun by sinners and saints coming for healing in the gospel. And eventually, we're too big, we're too large, and we say, we need to build another hospital. we got to put up another field hospital. That's the great thing about field hospitals, right? They're upstairs above the St. Mary's physical therapy, right? Pack it up and go do it somewhere else if we have to. Build another tent somewhere if we need to. And we can send out our best leaders, just like they did with Barnabas and Paul, to plant churches somewhere else. Even in our own backyard. Even in a place like West Virginia, where everything feels like competition for some reason in the church, we don't have to think that way. We could plant another church down the block and we could celebrate it. Even if they start drawing people, oh, that's our target. That's our target audience. Who cares? Jesus is saving people. I need some Ritalin or something. What is it that calms you? I need a downer. I need to be brought down. We mobilize by sending. That's why we're investing money in Logan Tennell and his wife and kid in Summersville as they plant Grace Gospel Church. That's why we let him preach in this pulpit and he got better and better and better every time, didn't he? That's not our blessing. That's God at work in him. But we said, here, use this pulpit so you can grow as a preacher. And he did. By God's grace. We're going to do stuff like that to send people. We might not send any of our people to Summersville, although if you're vacationed down there, you should check it out. We're sending. But not only that, we want to engage in it. Lord willing, we will send our own people out of this place as missionaries to plant churches. This is, this is painful, but it's never a loss. Matt Chandler says this. I think it's so beautiful. Churches that plant churches experience loss and gospel goodbyes that are awful and beautiful.
right and good. And we be a church that is willing to send out with joy, even through the pain. You know, the only thing more painful than sending people out is refusing to send them out. If God's called somebody to something and everybody's sitting around saying, yeah, they feel uh, they are called to that, let's send them. And somebody's sitting here with some power and some influence saying, nah, we're not doing that. That's far more painful. Refusing to send those who are called is far more painful than sending those who are called. I'm done shouting at us. It's a heavy call. Here's the good news. This is what we need today. We don't, we don't need me to reprimand all of us. That's important stuff we just talked about. But what we need the most is this. When we fail to intentionally multiply, Jesus didn't fail. And Jesus doesn't fail. And that's grace. Because we'll mess up at this, but Jesus never will. We read last week, John 6.38. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus went outward saying, thy kingdom come. That was one third of the Trinity, by the way, that left. The core team of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they're going to get split even worse, right? Not split. You you trust me to be a little loose here on doctrine and theology. But they're going to, Jesus is going to die on the cross. That will be the cost of kingdom multiplication. They pay it willingly. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That gave was arms stretched wide. That gave was nails into his hands and into his feet, a crown of thorns on his head. That gave was a spear in his side, the beard plucked out of his face. That's what that gave cost. He gave his son. Jesus lived perfect life. God with skin on. No sin in him, but at 33-ish years old, he dies on the cross. What happens there changes the world forever. Through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we sing sometimes, the wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. We exist, this multiplying church, in the kingdom of God because God was not afraid or scared or reluctant to send his son to die. We feel that. Saturate us when we feel guilt and shame. It's fine. Jesus has done the work, right? Repent of your failings and receive the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We'll celebrate that during communion. That's for Christians too, because we still mess up every single week, every single day in my case. And we come here and we take these elements and we're reminded Jesus didn't fail. When I fail, Jesus doesn't fail, and Jesus didn't fail. And we receive that forgiveness and that grace and that peace. We're also reinvigorated to go out and keep trying because it is that power that raised Jesus from the dead that is at work in us in multiplication. True gospel multiplication doesn't come without a cost, but the gospel of Jesus is worthy of that. Father, I haven't, I guess, gotten that juiced up in a while. I pray it was from you. And if it wasn't, 
I'm really sorry. But I pray the main takeaway will be that Jesus is enough. That the main takeaway for all of us who are the children of God will be that because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we can fail at this and we can get back up, dust ourselves off and keep trying to multiply intentionally. And you're with us every step of the way and you don't give up on us, you don't quit on us. If there's anyone here that's not a Christian, I pray they join the multiplying kingdom today. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.